Welcome to this episode of Self Made. I'm your host, D. Brown, CEO. My guests today need no introduction. Please help me welcome the one and only, the Honorable Judge Joe Brown. Judge, welcome to Self Made. I'm glad to have you on the show. My pleasure, young man. I guess the judge is in the house. The judge is in the house. Judge, uh, we like to really showcase uh, journeys on this show so people watching it can understand how each individual guest journey to their uh, successful careers or through their, their lifetime. And so what I want to do is, is really talk about back as a child, where did you grow up and what was it like growing up as a child? You want an expedited resume. All right. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, from kindergarten through law school. I was there. Uh, I spent most of that time in a place that's now known as South Central L.A., though the city council doesn't want to call that anymore. And um, I had a lot of adventures, saw a lot of wild things, wound up going to UCLA, graduated from there. I dug ditches, loaded trucks to pay my way through, had a scholarship from the Army, and let's see... There was this thing of uh, being a playground director at one time and then a substitute teacher for the L.A. school system. I got out of law school, wound up doing an intern thing at a D.C. think tank. was between D.C. and Chicago. That's been a long time ago, more than 50 years ago. And I wound up coming to Memphis, Tennessee when I got sent here on a job. I had a community lawyer fellowship out of Howard University, and I was assigned to legal services here in Memphis, and I wound up staying. I became an employee with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that's EEOC. I became the first black prosecutor in the city of Memphis. I wound up being the chief public defender for the city and ran that. Then I went into private practice, and I did a number of things, including volunteer to train capital defense team for the PD's office. I wound up getting the youngest person in the world off death row. He was 15 years and two weeks when I got a stay of execution 23 minutes before they were supposed to do him in. That was from then-Governor Bill Clinton and the Arkansas Supreme Court. Somewhat after that, I answered the call of the people and ran for criminal court judge, where I got elected to the first of two eight-year terms. And uh, they did a lot on me for my novel sentencing that saw the statewide recidivism rate for felons reduced from 80% down to 18. They offered me this show, and I did that for 15 years, and I retired some years ago. And now what I do is I cause trouble. I also, in addition to dealing with public service, I do sauce. <laughs> I have a barbecue sauce brand. What's the name of your barbecue sauce? 
It's Judge Joe Brown. And if you want it, you can go to <laughs> Judge Joe Brown, JJB Barbecue, BBQ.com. JJB BBQ.com. And it's some great stuff. I'm about to try Everybody that out. Everybody that's tasted it likes it. Order yourself some, and it'll be on the shelves in certain national chains uh, in not too long. Judge, we got a lot to unpack. I mean, you've had a uh, storied career. Uh, so I'm going to just kind of walk through uh, different uh, moments uh, in your life just to, to kind of get a, a clear picture. You grew up in South Central uh, L.A., and yeah. obviously during that time there were a lot of uh, challenges, uh, especially for, uh, you know, young black men uh, to come out of that environment and become uh, rise to the top of their um, chosen career. What were some of the challenges you, you faced during that time frame growing up in, in South Central? Well, it was a violent place. I came to school one morning at John Muir Junior High School on Vermont Avenue near Slauson. And I was in the ninth grade, and there was a guy hanging at half-mast from the flagpole by the neck. He had graduated the year before and gone on to manual arts, but he was into this gang thing. His belly was cut open, and... 10 feet of intestine was hanging down and pooled on the sidewalk. It was one of those kind of places. So we had to carefully plan uh, how to get home every evening from campus. So if you saw anybody with somebody you knew and not somebody you didn't want to see you. What, how it did, was interesting. How, how did that impact you, though, as a, as a child, you know, young, young uh, teenager, seeing that type of violence? How did that impact you? No big deal. It was just ordinary. I think I saw more than a dozen people killed within 15, 20 yards of where I was standing at the time they were killed by the time I got in high school. Wow. Or out of high school anyway. So I wound up transferring to the other side of town, somewhere near the Crenshaw district, uh, when my parents moved, and I wound up finishing my, well, public school career at Dorsey High School. I played football there, wound up going to UCLA, played a little ball there too, but I decided I was not gonna waste time doing that and so much that I was not about to be a pro player. So I was a safety, a defensive back, and did a little running, too. But I concentrated on what was going on. I got very active in the Black Student Alliance uh, slash BSU thing for Los Angeles, where we had a lot of college campuses, and it was a big thing, and there were a lot of adventures going on. We went on patrol to keep the neighborhood safe. Uh, we had some run-ins with LAPD who back then were really rough. It was sort of, uh, we wish to see your papers, please. Papers, man, what you talking about papers? You mean like I.D. Fritz, he does not have his papers. Not in humor, comrade. That is not good. Not so scooting. Hey, man, hey, he driver's license, you know. I mean, the LAPD was always doing a thing on everybody that I knew. And they didn't particularly like the brand of militant activity that a lot of black students were doing back then. So we got a lot of flack from the FBI, LAPD's SIS unit, 
and some others, and it was an adventure. So I could tell some stories about that, but I won't because we don't have enough time. And a lot of people <laughs> might go running, oh my God. <laughs> so what inspired but, you to go to law school? Well, I didn't particularly want to go to law school. I intended to be an engineer, doctor, or a scientist. Thanks to St. Ron, the ray gun, um, I had to make some changes, and my faculty advisor told me, and said, hey, you know, you can declare political science a major. I said, what the devil am I going to do with that? He said, well, teach. I said, I don't want to teach any damn political science. He said, well, try law school. I said, I don't particularly want to be a lawyer. He said, well, you've been active in a whole lot of stuff, so that's your thing. Why don't you try it? Well, I did. I discovered that I'd aced the LSAT test, so I got correspondence from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, all these places offering me a full ride. But when I went back there, there was a lot of snow on the ground, and I really wasn't interested, so I stayed at L.A., in L.A. at UCLA, and I think one of the motivations was I had a damn fine girlfriend I was trying to reconcile with. Uh, that didn't work out, but it was what it was. So tell me about you becoming the first uh, African-American prosecutor. Uh, how did that come about? Well, I had been with legal services and a very pretty functionary we had there who was possessed of a master's degree. She was into sociology. She was assisting the program and its community reach out and some knuckleheads on vice busted her for assignation, AKA prostitution. So I wound up defending her pro bono and I cut up so badly in the courtroom that they offered me this position as the first black prosecutor. Of course, it was one of those things where they had a federal grant to conduct an experimental DUI court. So they put me in there since they didn't want me to be mainstream, but it was interesting. And I wrote, help write protocols that are still used by 38 states if you get busted for a DUI. So I learned a lot, saw how the system worked, had some adventures. And then from there, I went on to be the chief public defender for the city when it still had criminal jurisdiction. It doesn't now. And my successor was my ultimate law partner, but he died in an interesting adventure. There were 42 defendants, no, 43 defendants in a federal drug conspiracy case, and they were some federal agents, police, a lot of lay people, and I think there were 43 defendants, and every single lawyer and defendant wound up having their case abated by death, except me and the two I represented. Everybody else met some kind of accident, like two of them were in bathtubs, one uh, portable radio plugged in, supposedly fell into the bathtub, another one plugged in portable TV, two of them fell downstairs and fractured their skulls. Wow. Two of them were in the National Guard and supposedly on separate occasions dropped their M16A1s, which went off and shot them under the chin. My partner supposedly committed suicide, but the weapon was fired from more than five feet away, hit him here 
came out the back of his head and you know that that was a, a interesting thing but it could get exciting in those days so yeah man and i tried a whole bunch of criminal defense cases and i think i tried somewhere around 42 first degree murders where they demanded the death penalty and none of my clients are on death row or wound up on death row so except that one down in Arkansas, and I got his cases set aside unanimously by the Arkansas Supreme Court, and one of the basis for that was an all-white jury. Can you tell us more about that particular case? Oh, yes. The young man's name was Ron Ward. He was a 13-year-old young lad who was accused of killing three white people, two elderly ones, and one classmate. It was interesting because the deceased were relatives of the high sheriff, and the sheriff's wife turned up dead on the railroad tracks. Next door neighbor turned up dead. There was a million and a quarter cash photographed, seized from the scene that disappeared on the way to the crime scene, crime lab down in Little Rock, Arkansas. All kinds of things were going on. The putative nephew of the sheriff or grandson of the sheriff uh, apparently turned uh, helpful to the feds and wound up getting his wife out of jail after she was in for a long time, but they seized eight and a half tons of dope on a confiscated DCA jet plane. So it got real adventurous. Wow. And that so was the youngest person in the world on death row at the time. And a little aside on that, the youngest person executed in the United States in the 20th century was a 10-year-old girl who was busted for shoplifting on Saturday in a small township in Arkansas. She was tried on Monday and hung on Wednesday for stealing 14 cents of merchandise during the Depression. Jeez, wow. So you went on, Judge, from that, um, uh, being a uh, public defender, uh, et cetera. This, this, was why, this wasn't public defender in this case. This was while I was in private practice. Gotcha. We had a thing there where if you had your own office or were in a firm, you could also be what they call a part-time public defender, and you were expected to take more difficult cases, which is, and since my partner... And then another partner who wound up being mayor, the Honorable A.C. Wharton, wow. uh, became a partner. He also, after running legal services for a while, became the chief public defender. So uh, I continued to do volunteer work there. And I think I had about, like I said, a lot of first-degree murder cases. So I had a lot of trial work, and I think I had... 300 or so jury trials by the time I got through. But you went on to, to, to become criminal court uh, judge as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk to me about that journey. What led you to... Well, I looked at myself as the village chieftain. So as a village chieftain, your job is to bestow order in the village, and that includes resolving legal disputes and dealing with public disorder. That's what I did. So I'd like to eyeball defendants so I would have them trotting back to court every so often when I put them on probation and the clerk's office didn't like that. But I said, you work for me, not the other way around. And I'm trying to reduce criminality 
and straighten this place out. Now, it is something that seemed to have worked, and just two or three days ago, I was out for dinner, and somebody walked up to me with a lot of gray in his hair, and he said, Judge, you remember me? I said, no, sir, I don't. I, I said, where would I know you from? He said, you gave me some time. I said, well, did I give you enough? He said, oh, yeah, but it was <laughs> that manhood thing that you were teaching us, and finally it took. So now I've got eight grandchildren, and I'll teach them what you were trying to teach me, and I've got 14, 15 neighborhood boys that come over every day, and I try to put in that head what you taught me in their heads, and it works. And see, what that was all about was you need purpose in life if you want to do something with it. And the purpose that we have gotten so far away from these days is manhood and womanhood. So when a guy looks in a mirror in the morning and he brushes his teeth, shaves, and does his hair, he's looking at himself and he's saying, did you act like a man yesterday? Are you going to act like one today? Are you going to act like one tomorrow? And he was conditioned by me in some circumstances I put him through to feel great shame if he couldn't answer that question in the affirmative. And by the way, we don't want to shame anybody these days. We don't want anybody's feelings hurt, but that is a good human control factor, shame and embarrassment. So I used it, and that meant that he has a purpose. He wants to be and is committed to being a man. And see, that knocked out a lot of that, yo, judge, I'm 22. I ain't going to live to be 24. Somebody going to kill me. What's the point? I might as well sit on my sofa, smoke a blunt, and play vid games, you know? Well, see, if you're already thinking you're dead, then that means there's no problem with you being a hero. And all those other people who don't have daylight at the end of the tunnel, you can kill the fire-breathing Gila monsters that are setting fire to everything in that tunnel and obscuring the daylight with the smoke. So you have an opportunity to do something with yourself if you don't mind dying. You might as well die for something that's important and serves a purpose. Now, the other thing is Village Chieftain. I walked through the areas where I would find the people in my court, and I was not above to say, man, come here. Didn't I tell you to have your behind in the house at 10 o'clock every night? It's 11.15, and you're out there walking around. Hey, man, who this dude? I didn't ask you. This A and B conversation. You want to listen in, sit your ass, well, sit over there, and we can talk. And I might have 10, 15 more him there when the sun came up when we're talking about manhood. Otherwise, this guy's coming back to see me in a couple of days. I gave him a time, and I'm going to jack him up until he does exactly what I tell him to do. So he will get used to the idea of having deadlines, having accountability. He will become responsible, and he will get the idea that it's all about doing what you should do, not what you feel like doing. Hey, Judge, you, I know in, in the, the position of uh, criminal court judge, you handled a number of high-profile cases. Uh, what is the one that's uh, most memorable? Well, not the one that's most memorable. Those weren't the high-profile ones. But the most high-profile case I handled was the matter of State versus James Earl Ray. 
Martin Luther King's alleged assassin. And that was quite interesting because I discovered when I was detached, impartial, and objective and got into the thing that one, Ray never confessed to killing King. He always denied it, but he was entering what they call an Alford plea, which is even though he claimed to be not guilty, he was entering it because he thought it was in his best interest to do so, and he didn't want to risk receiving a death penalty. The other thing was, is when we got to the bottom of the whole thing and we went through a lot of changes getting the rifle retested, it turned out that his rifle, a Remington 760 Game Master, a pump action 30-06, was not the murder weapon. When I finally got the ballistic results, it turned out that the bullet that killed King was fired by a very peculiar weapon that had a novel rate of rifling twist down the barrel. And unless somebody had access to a military weapon or a custom gunsmith, uh, Ray was not going to have that, and he didn't, but it turned out that the FBI had on invoice the receipt of five weapons that matched identically the ballistic characteristics of what killed King and 5,000 rounds of the ammunition that uh, was peculiar unique and custom loaded that matched the bullet they pulled out of King. So what we discovered is that the FBI recruited somebody from two people, not one, from the Quantico Marine Sniper Base, which also had an FBI Academy, well, training facility located in the same area. And the shots the shot, excuse me, was fired from the fire station, not from the flop house or from the bushes. And the reason everybody thinks it was fired from over in that direction, one's right above the other, the flop house, bathroom window, and the bushes are right in line is because the sound echoed off of the front of the Lorraine Motel. We also tracked down and got affidavits, uh, some of which was very interesting. For example, Ed Reddick, a policeman, was trying to conduct overwatch for King's safety, and then there were six black detectives or sergeants who were acting as King's bodyguard who were ordered to leave. They wouldn't. Their supervisor came down there and personally told them they had to hit the road and go downtown or they would be looking at civil service the next day. Supposedly, there was a threat against their lives. There was one black fireman at this fire station. He was told that he needed to take off immediately because his son had been severely injured in an accident, which turned out to be a false report. Fortunately, the boy was sound and well at home, and there was a strike going on then. Well, he said he was coming back to the fire station. They told him to take the day off. Ed Reddick, who wound up, he was a black police sergeant. I knew him. He wound up staying on overwatch. He refused to leave, so they sent two squad guards down there, 10 white cops. They double handcuffed him and hogtied his legs with a rope, and they threw him in the back seat of a car and removed him from the scene. 
I've got an affidavit from him. Tommy Smith, who was the first detective there after the killing, says it would have been impossible for Ray to have done the shooting because Ray wasn't even in Memphis that day and they knew where he was. Further, the shot could not have come from the fire station, well, not the fire station, but from the flop house because amongst other things, there was a large tree growing between the window and the bushes and the Lorraine Motel, which was cut down one hour after the investigation started. They discovered there'd been a cut down order at nine o'clock that morning, but since the sanitation workers were on strike, it did not get done. Hey, now, Judge, all I, of that Judge, I want to jump. I want to. I want to jump in real quick because I want to make sure I ahead. capture uh, about for the, for the next minute uh, for you just to tell my viewers what does it mean to you to be self-made because you've been very accomplished. Came okay, well, I, I'm sorry to go off on that. That's just no, topical that's, today with what we hear about government integrity. No, absolutely. Because the last part of this story is I have the serial numbers of the five. XM-21 rifles that were furnished to the FBI. After King got shot, the Justice Department ordered them to return the five rifles to the Defense Department, who wanted them for the NOM. And the FBI, believe it or not, claimed they lost one. So they had an inventory, and they could only come up with four. So I have the serial number of the missing weapon, and that's the one that killed King, as well as a description of the ammo. Now, that said, how did I get where I am? Focus. Those books you read, those are magic books. And I owe a lot of what I am to my father and to my grandfathers. My mother and grandmothers cooperated, but basically the masculine component drove me to be what I am. And I was always told it's a man thing, act like a man, man up, man a man does this, a man does not do that. And you have a duty and a responsibility to do something for your people and to help them get free. Now, one grandfather who was a physician for a long time was born before the Civil War. His father had been brought over from Judge, I hate to, I hate Nigeria. To I hate to cut you off, Judge, but we're out of time for this uh, okay, episode. Well, just folks, but I want to thank all. you. No, I want to thank you for being on the show. It was a great uh, having you here. And to my viewers, I want to thank you for watching this episode of Self Made with D Brown CEO. And remember, without you, there's no me.